happy 60th. Happy birthday, Johnny Marr, one of the most distinctive, unique guitarists ever. His jangly style, utterly unique and possibly an influence to many a Dunedin band. As guitarist in the Smith, Johnny Marr was in one of the biggest bands of the early 80s. Hard to believe that when the Smiths broke up, Johnny Marr was only, get this, 23 and had a string of classic songs to his name, an extraordinary artist. And actually, it was a pleasure to have spent some time chatting to Johnny Marr a few years back on Sunday morning. Tell us a little bit about workshopping the Smith songs. How did the Smith songs come about? Well, I used to sometimes rack my brain to try and fit one riff with another riff and make a verse work, and then some other times they would just come through the window. Uh, you know, I think uh, the quote that of Picasso's that inspiration does exist, but it has to find you working is really accurate. And I think anyone who does anything creative will know that that's the case. You know, I mean, this business about I was in the supermarket and then this song arrived fully formed. I don't know many people who that's happened to, really. <laughs> I think that's a fable. However, if you're sat there with your guitar or your pen or whatever, and you, you know, you've got your work ethic going and you know, then things can magically happen. That's Johnny Marr there talking to me on Sunday morning a few years back. Uh, so happy birthday, Johnny. If you're a guitarist or if you're a guitar fan or even the Smiths, I don't know about you, Lavina, whether or not you're a Smiths person. I am. Are you, you are. Yeah, I loved him. I love Johnny Marr. Like, I know he um, hooked up with, you know, did the pretenders thing. But my favourite right. thing about Johnny Marr is the the. My brother Stephen is a massive oh. the fan and he's told me about Johnny Marr over the years. It took me a long time to appreciate Johnny Marr, but in the yeah. last four or five years, I'm like, what a, what a decent guitarist, mate. Yeah, and that great uh, album, Soul Mining, eh? what about you, Liam, there, a, a, a Smiths fan? Did he go down that sort of route, route? Yeah, he yeah, did. Huge. He did. He was a Smiths yeah. fan. It was the, the that convinced me, though, yeah. when he sent me, <laughs> he sent me the uh, what about LP. You, what about you, Liam, here? Yeah, huge, right? Like in my, like when I sort of discovered them in my late teens, sort of getting introduced to them by some <laughs> older family members, just they remained one of my favourite bands. Um, you know, I was really big, also quite a big Morrissey fan, and yeah. it's unfor- sort of unfortunate what's gone on with Morrissey mm. sort of in, in recent years. But I went to, a, like, I, I went to those awesome Smiths tribute bands, <gasps> and um, they played in, um, in Otaki, I think it was, uh, and they're called. They're from Gisborne. They're called um, um, Moldersey. Yes. So they're four. four mo- that's <laughs> right. I've interviewed them. They're fantastic. The yeah, that's right. Now, yeah. um, by the way, that that interview is still online too. You could just go Johnny Ma uh, Sunday morning RNZ, and it'll be there. All twenty five minutes of it. Uh, oh my goodness! The Halloween's coming thick and fast. Hi, my name is Jason, and I'm looking forward to coming to visit you tonight, Wallace. Okay. Um, oh, he sounds scary. He sounds right. like Chucky, the spirit yeah. Chucky doll. Yes. Out for him, Jason Voorhees. He does. It's Jason Voorhees yeah. from Friday the 13th. I mean, it's not, it's not in capital letters, but, you know, it's a very small <laughs> little text there. And it's a threat. I, <laughs> it's a threat. <laughs> and I am just uh, loving the show and tells coming through. Paul says, mine is a, a tonga in the drawer, a sperm whale tooth given to my great-grandfather, Harry Biddle, by Jack Pirano of Tory Channel, about 1900. Good heavens above. Uh, you are with Lavina Good and Liam here this afternoon. Uh, loving your company. Thanks for being with us. Well, Nelson City Council to review closed 
task forces after the Ombudsman report, the latest counsel to take a look at how transparent its practices are. Last week, the Chief Ombudsman, Peter Boschia, called on all councils to open workshops to the public to increase transparency and address the concern that decisions were being made in private. Now, under the Act, all meetings where decisions are made must be held in public unless a resolution is made to exclude the public. All this was raised in a comment piece in the Post called Clearing Out the Silly Secrecy from Local Government. With us is Stephen Speller, a government's board chairman, speaker and local government commentator from Palmerston North. Kia ora, Stephen. Kia ora, how are you? Very well. So Peter Boschia also took issue with reasons for allowing councillors a safe space to ask Silly questions. Uh, how do you react to the chief ombudsman's findings? Yeah, now there is a small distinction. So the councils are still allowed to have closed workshops, yeah. but they just have to be very, very careful with the reasons. And the reasons some of them were given were, you know, I'd like a space to ask a silly or a dumb question. Those are both quotes as well from the councillors. Um, but the piece that I wrote for the Post was really just taking issue with the fact that if you're a publicly elected councillor, and you need more information, it should never be a silly issue to be asking for that information. And in fact, for good governance, we should be asking more information, and the public benefits from seeing that question go on anyway. One significant point was around, and you raised it, what constitutes a meeting or a decision? Can you give us an explainer on that? Well, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because the Act says that you can have a meeting that's closed and a meeting, but a good reason, but it then kind of doesn't define what a meeting necessarily is. It does go into, the Ombudsman report does say that, you know, a hui, we can't just change the name to a hui or a forum uh. or a briefing and become a closed meeting. Um, the other side there is, um, there was actually an interesting takeaway that lots of meetings weren't having outcomes that were recorded um, where councillors actually said, you know, X, Y and Z councillor voted X, Y and Z way. Some meetings were having simply this is passed or failed with no personal accountability tied to any councillor. I know that was a side issue, but I thought that was a very interesting piece that actually should benefit local government once you go to know who your councillor is voting for or what they're voting for. What do you think, Liam? Um, well, it's, it is, like, so I've, I've, um, I've provided legal advice to um, councillors for a long time, mostly on the property and uh, sort of commercial front and, and not sort of this issue so much. But, um, Stefan, what's going to come out of this, right? So uh, um, we've, got a, we've got a fairly sort of puritanical uh, sort of activist ombudsman, and he's been quite, you know, he's been on this uh, issue for a while. What's it going to take to change practice? Like, you know, the, the, the ombudsman scolding um, the councils is one thing. Um, yeah. Does it then flow through to some sort of legislative change or will they just say, oh, thanks, mate, but, uh, you know, t- thanks for your views and we'll continue as we are? Well, I'll give you an example from Horizons. There was an article about Horizons in a recent paper and they actually did say we're going to look at it. They kind of routinely were closing meetings when actually they thought, actually, we could probably afford to open. So the Ombudsman report has probably prompted some councils to do things differently. The, the frustrating thing, I think, about the report is there's eight councils we're told that it's a different size councils, urban and rural cross, but really the biggest councils, you know, it's not a big council, Palmerston North. Um, and actually, it does feel like it's really heavily hit on a rural base. Um, and it really does say in the report that some councils are doing exceptionally well, but we don't know no. which one's which. Oh. So there's actually no way for a council of the eight to say we're doing exceptionally poorly or well, unless well, two of them were specified as poor. 
Lavina. Yeah, firstly, a great article, Stefan. I had no idea about the lack of clarity. But for me, the thing is, aren't they talking about public funds and assets? And surely that's no platform to exclude the public. And correct me if I am wrong, but wasn't the purpose of the Act to enable kind of more participation from the public in terms of decisions and promoting some sort of accountability from the elected councillors? So my, my question to you, Stefan, is, why are multiple councils applying for different methods of trying to work around access and accountability? What are they actually afraid of? What are they afraid of? I, I asked exactly the same question because no councils got together amongst themselves and decided to do this. It seems independent, mm. sparked each council. And I don't think councils, if we're honest, are trying to avoid transparency. Uh, some of the answers were, I don't want to look silly and I don't want to look dumb. There's an element of that. I just don't believe that's a good enough reason. And actually, the, the Ombudsman said that as well. Looking silly, it being a controversial topic or it being heated, is reason to go further into public. Um, but I think that's probably a good question you can ask your individual councillor. But hang on, Stefan. Isn't the point that we elect these good people, these good, honest people to office, hard job local council, isn't there a degree of trusting them to make the right decisions for us? I think trust and responsibility do come in roundabouts, don't they? We trust because we can probe and we have the Official Information Act and the Local Government Meeting Act for this reason. We do trust our councillors in certain things because we can actually check and see and confirm. But I think blind trust is a very different thing. Well, it's very interesting, Stefan. It's lovely to have you on the program. Kia ora. That's Stefan Speller, a Governance Board Chairman and Local uh, Government Commentator. Meanwhile, the feedback is rolling through regarding Halloween. Robin in Mount Albert, Auckland says, I'm the Grinch. I think it is American commercialism at its very worst. And if people really understood what it's about, they might think twice. I have a sign on our door saying, no, thank you. So just beware of the no thank you house in Mount Albert kids uh, tonight, uh, the panel. And uh, by the way, I can't wait to um, pr- present two wonderful panel show and towels with you in five minutes' time. They are quite something. So you'll be wanting to stick around in the panel and hear those. Uh, Lavina Good and Liam here joining me this afternoon to this. We return to this um this cancellations issue, right? So we had Simone Jones yesterday, an Auckland hairdresser who had over $1,000 of services cancelled just after the long weekend. So they've decided to hit back. And one eatery bar owner went and got in touch saying, this is a far bigger issue than you think, especially as we come into the Christmas booking season, which starts Tomorrow, actually, November, uh, with us is the co-owner of The Tasting Room, Wellington, Duncan Gillespie. Duncan, good to have you here. Thanks, Wallace. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So, you say this is a far bigger issue than people might realise. Give us an example of what you might call cancel culture. Yeah, so we've had, we've had um, a couple that stick out. I mean, on, on the most part, look, customers are great. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a couple that really stick out for me. One a couple of weeks ago... Um, on the Wednesday, someone booked up for booked in for fifteen people to come in for dinner, six thirty Saturday night. Busy time for us, but yep, we'll make space. Good as gold. Um, and on the night we 
you know, about, uh, we put the signs out at first, the beginning of the day to, to, you know, say, hey, this is reserved at this time. Um, so, of course, people stopped sitting on there kind of half an hour before the booking, so from about 6 o'clock. Um, we set it all up, uh, ready for them. Um, 6.30 rolls on, no one there. So I went there about 15 minutes late. I gave them a call and said, hey, um, just leave that naturally they didn't answer. And I said, hey, just letting you know, um, you got the booking. I just, just if you could give us a call and let it, let us know so that we can keep keep it all available for you. Nothing. So then at half past, I called and said, "Hey, look, if we don't hear from you in sort of five minutes, we're going to have to let the table go. We were really busy and we were turning people away. Um, no response at all. Uh, I called back a couple of days later on the Monday and I said, "Oh, hey, look, you had a booking with us on Saturday," and they said, "Oh, yeah, yeah, they must have gone somewhere else." And I said, "Oh my well, goodness." Yeah, I said, "Oh, so." Like, 15 people knew to go somewhere else, but the place was booked, didn't know. And she's like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. And I said, well, just so you know, we hold just under 80 people. Um, so 15 people is just under 20% of our restaurant Ooh. that you've taken up. Um, I said, you know, by the time people weren't sitting on there beforehand, by the time we set it up and then, uh, you know, packed it back down again, it was an hour of, you know, around about 20% of our restaurant that was unusable. 20% of the uh, restaurant unusable, cold, hard cash, Liam, here yeah. that's not going into the pockets of uh, hard-working uh, 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 owners, staff, eateries, Liam. It's so rude. I mean, like, even just, you know, you know um, uh, making the reservation and then not showing up is, is rude. You know, you should feel ashamed a little bit or a little bit embarrassed to cancel in the first place. But to, to not call at all, you know, or to respond, um, man, it's just, oh, uh, it, look, I- any small business is doing it tough at the moment, but in the hospitality sector where the m- margins are razor thin, I think, come on, people, we're just going to be better than that. And, you know, you can say that, yep, it's all on restaurants. If restaurants could, you know, they could charge a deposit or they could, you know, uh, limit the reservations that they take. But actually, you know what, we, we shouldn't just sort of require restaurants to assume that people are going to lack this sort of common yep. courtesy. It's, um, I, feel, I feel for you. Yes, Duncan, uh, uh, stay there. Let's bring Lavina yep. and you can respond to both. Yeah, first of all, Duncan, I'm a massive fan of the tasting room. I must say I love your cauliflower wings and black bean tacos. I've all right, all right. on several occasions. <laughs> I love them, love them. I don't I don't know how comfortable I'd feel about if I tried to book book a table at your restaurant like I've done. Um, I've worked overseas over the last month and tried to book some restaurants and they've said, can you please give us your um, visa or MasterCard to leave a deposit? And I'm thinking, I don't know how comfortable I feel about that. But for, for so many small businesses, um, not just in hospitality but health and well-being as well, I mean, I mean they offer a 24-hour policy. And, and I'm thinking, honestly, Duncan, I'm hoping that's not a lot of your clients. I'm thinking most of your clients would actually just not, not have to go through that process. But on another hand, my mum got COVID last week. She missed an appointment. She was due to have her hair cut and she was so sick she forgot to phone up. I'm going to name Darren Wiley. I'm going to name and fame you. And rather than say, hey, that, that cancellation cost me money, he offered to drop her off some oh. soup. So it's a fine line, I think, for some yeah. small yeah. businesses as to what direction they go in. Mm, Duncan? Yeah, I mean, for us, look, hospitality is kind of escapism from home. Um, you want to go out and have a nice time. We don't want to put more rules on. You know, but when it's when it's hitting that bottom line that massively, you know, and, and that oh. happened a lot last Christmas as well. Um, you know, where people are booking 
multiple venues and then just deciding on the day which one they want to go to. It's not a new thing, but it's still not a nice thing. No, because you know? um, so because that's the that's the that is the response that we will get and we are getting. Easy, easy fix. Put down half a deposit or a twenty five percent deposit. But you were saying actually that can act as somewhat of a barrier. It takes away that enjoyment mm, of going out. Right? Totally. Yeah, it's meant oh. to be fun. You're not meant to have too many rules. It's, you know, we've got enough rules as it is. We, yeah, it's it's another rule that we just, yeah, it, it feels. And and also, you know, depending on, on how people pay, if it's a credit card, there's also another fee gets taken. Um, yeah, for the, for the deposit itself. So... Well, on which, which Duncan, people are on your side. Name and shame, name and shame. Dis- disgustingly bad mam- manners. Uh, not to call this restaurant. Uh, this is so rude. I heard about someone who books three or four restaurants in a night when on holiday and just goes to the one they feel like the most on the night. So what, coming into the season there, because as I understand too, this wasn't a small client. This was actually um, a, a corporate, if I may say so, not to name. Yeah. What's a nice reminder then for those businesses out there, all those those individual tables, what's a nice reminder coming in to the Christmas season for us all to learn? Yeah, look, it's just that thing is, hey, we, we, we love you to book, um, so we know you're coming in so we can look after you, you know. Um, you know, book the day before if you can so we really can, can pull out all the stops. We, we, want, we want you to, you know, we want to share our place with you and, and give you a good time. Um, we want you to get out of the house and, and, you know, not have to worry about the dishes and just chat and have drink brought to you. You know, that's that's what we want to do. So, um, yeah, definitely book. Um, we love that. But actually show up or if, or if you have to cancel for whatever reason, um, just give us some decent notice so that we can uh-huh. – like even that one. That one would have been fine if we'd even known an hour before, to be fair. Gotcha. We could have put other people on the table, but um, – Good yeah. solutions there, Duncan. Good solutions. Yeah. Uh, it's all it takes, eh? Nice to have you on and um, hope the season goes well for you. Right. Thanks, Wallace. That's uh, Duncan Gillespie there, uh, co-owner of The Tasting Room in Wellington. Lavina says it's good, never been there. But um, finally, on the panel, every so often we do that, it's occasional, but uh, gosh, the stories we have. Um, it, it's, it's If you can recall that show and tell you used to do it at primary school and you'd take along a, anything, a sort of a, a, a little sort of something from the cupboard anyway. Last time we had a green cap from grand, granddads who played in 1931 cricket alongside Don Brabant with us this afternoon is Marilina. Hello, Marilina. Hello, Willis. Oh, it's lovely to have you on. Very excited to hear about your little show and tell this afternoon. What do you have for us? It's a family heirloom dating back to a great-great-great-grandfather who fought in the Boer War. And he returned with a prized possession of a hollowed-out armadillo, complete with the fur on the top, with the armadillo mouth eating its tail. And there'd been some, um, yes, material put inside. And as a child, I remember we used it to put nuts in at Christmas. So I inherited it. I was the one that came to New Zealand, and uh, I still have it from South Africa. My goodness me, Lavina, the things we have in our cupboards across the country. 
I just think that's delightful. I'm with Marilina. I have an heirloom. In fact, um, in terms of show and tell, it takes a bit of difficulty to try and take it to the, the classroom. I didn't pay for it, but I love it. When my dad passed away, he decided to leave me with a Selma Mark VI saxophone, which I'm looking at at the moment. Oh. And I think to myself, one day I will play that because he played with Miles Davis <gasps> and Charlie Bird. What? And I'm thinking that is that is something that is so special and I love jazz music because of that saxophone and I look at it and think now, thank you so much to Marilina. Not will I just look at it, I'm going to learn to play it. I'm going to play that thing. What the heck? We, we all have our mouths open here in uh, the studio. That's extraordinary. But with us, Marilyn, so I understand it's always freaked out your grandsons, as you say. Yes, I've kept it occasionally when I move house, which is frequently, I bring it out. And um, <laughs> they, uh, they're all in their 20s now, but it still freaks them out. I should keep it from a a great, great grandfather, but pretty uh, special to me. Oh, it's so special, and it's so nice having you on the program, Marilina. Thank you very much uh, for that. Just very brief before we go to Rachel, how did um, how, how did the link with Miles Davis, Miles Davis happen? Yeah, my dad was a, a, um, a saxophonist that um, toured throughout London for many, many years and uh, was probably one of the best saxophonists that I'd ever listened to in my life. And he had played with Miles and Charlie Bird. Colin Kello. Don't wow. forget that name. Colin, Colin Kello. Kello. And I've got, I've got the saxophone here. And one day I'm going to learn to try and put the reed in and blow that thing. That's it's just, beautiful. <laughs> That's just amazing, Lavina. And with us is Rachel for the panel show and tell. Get it, Rachel. Hi there. What do you have? So we have, unfortunately, not the originals because they're with the Charles Darwin Correspondence Project, but we have scans of correspondence between my something great grandfather and Charles Darwin about dog breeding. What? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I, um, we have the scans of this letter that was picked up by a naturalist friend of his between two great something uncles about um, a bull terrier that was being bred by this grandfather of mine. And so there's annotations on that letter by Charles Darwin that's um, follow up about impregnation, something, something, and then all this correspondence between them kind of talking about why the dogs would look like that if they bred with different breeds. That's just utterly extraordinary, Rachel. Does this predate his publishing of The Origin of Species by any chance? So the original ones do, and then they continue up until... Um, the great-grandfather, um, Alexander, was it Alexander Beaton, um, up until he died. Well, well, that's, that's amazing. So this, but, but answer, who was, was, the, was, was your relative a, a, a dog breeder? How did, how did yeah, this person, so, how did he get in touch with, why did he get in touch with Charles Darwin? Basically, um, the great-uncles, they were both, living in Shanghai with Robert Swinhoe, who was a naturalist, and they oh. kind of talked about this un this grandfather and said, oh, well, they, he had this weird experience breeding his dogs. And so Swinhoe took the letter back to Darwin and said, hey, look at this, it's pretty cool. And then Darwin's written all over it and, yeah, gotten back in touch, <laughs> kind of asking, hey, what is that about crossbreeding? Why do they look that way? That's just amazing, Rachel. Hey, really nice to have you on the program. It's yeah, extraordinary. Thanks for me. There you go, Rachel, who has authentic correspondence between an ancestor and Charles Darwin about uh, breeding dogs. It's uh, quite the story, Liam. Anything from you? 
Yeah, like it's um, it's quite a well-known thing that Charles Darwin was this huge dog lover, and um, right. dogs were like dogs played this huge, big part in his thinking and you know his, yeah. his ideas on you know all mammals having a you know, all, all species having a common ancestor. And there's actually I read a while ago a really good book. It's called um, Darwin's Dogs, and it's about how like his love of dogs you know like fed into this um, yeah. into his theory of evolution. So like. Yeah, like amazing to have an actual example. There we go, authenticated. <laughs> Who knows, maybe even that correspondence is uh, footnoted in the book somewhere. Yes, and on the panel for show and tell, Lavina, Liam, you've been fantastic. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I'm Wallace Chapman, see you tomorrow, 3.45, uh, and Lisa Owen with Checkpoint is next. Stay tuned.